Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Happy uh, Tuesday, thanks, Steve. Thanks for joining us for another Dispatch Live. I am here with Sarah Isker. Happy Tuesday, Sarah. Thank you. Jonah Goldberg. Whatever. <laughs> and David French. Note to self, always do Jonah last. <laughs> um, there's a lot to talk about. So we are going to move with dispatch, as some might say, to get to the news. Um, big hearing on Capitol Hill today. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson, a senior aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, had been sort of working at the White House before that, in a variety of positions in uh, conservative circles, testified before the January 6th committee in what was billed as sort of emergency testimony. Uh, this was a, a newly scheduled hearing. There are two more scheduled, two more hearings scheduled for July. The possibility, I think, exists for more than just those two. But uh, Jonah, I'll start with you. Um, incredibly explosive testimony today from Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, and we're going to get to some questions that have been raised about some of the things she testified to today uh, a little bit later. But just to level set, what did you think of the testimony? What did you hear that was new? And what were your impressions at the end of uh, her time in the chair? Yeah, so we should bra bracket for reasons we're obviously going to get into the testimony, which was secondhand from her about Trump lunging for his Secret Service driver and and all of that, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, I think, you know, I think as someone who subscribes to the view that that Trump's primary sin on January 6th was the dereliction of duty of not responding um, to the unfolding violence as it was happening, um, um, that that was the most impeachable thing he did, not the potential incitement and all these kinds of things. I think the fact that we learned that, in fact, there were there were credible reports that people were trying to bring in firearms into the rally and that Trump was made aware of these things. And even if you take the most beneficial explanation, which uh, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson seemed to think was the primary explanation, which is that he just wanted those guys, whether or not they were carrying AK-47s or, or AR-15s and, and Glock pistols and knives and, and spears and whatnot, he wanted them to come to the rally because he was upset about how small the crowd size was. Um, even if you, if you, even if you credit that explanation um, and you credit the, the testimony is accurate that he said, look, I don't care. They're not here to hurt me. Um, that I think is incredibly damning. Um, um, if true, if corroborated and all that, um, because it, elevates his foreknowledge of the fact that this that there were dangerous people in the crowd well before the actual assault on the Capitol happened. And for the timeline that that she laid out and that Liz Cheney laid out, that meant that that when he started telling people to march on the Capitol, he knew that he was telling people who had guns, go march on the Capitol. And that changes the entire narrative or attempted narrative about how this was you know, he was telling them to go peacefully. This was a peaceful crowd with a few hotheads. Um, um, it changes all of that because it, it it puts in his own head knowledge that that 
it was foreseeable that things could go extremely bad and that there were people there not looking so much to exercise their First Amendment rights as their alleged Second Amendment rights. And I know that that wouldn't really have been in accord with the Second Amendment rights. Um, beyond that, I think the the sort of just mic drop allegation at the end that Meadows, as well as some others, wanted pardons um, is a big deal and a big sort of for the narrative to sort of have a propulsive interest in future hearings. I think dropping that was really important. Um, I feel like I'm leaving out another big one, um, but I am sure that my colleagues will, will mention it. So I'm going to pass the mic. Well, David, let me follow up with you. Uh, um, you know, Jonah mentioned the timeline. Um, there were many things that Cassidy Hutchinson testified to that were part of this timeline, starting even before January 6th. Uh, she testified discussions, personal conversations that she had with Rudy Giuliani, for instance, who said to her in a way that left her sort of startled, Cassidy, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. And this was four days, I believe. Right. That was January 2nd. That's the thing. January 6th. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Meadows also, uh, according to her conversation as relayed to her and uh, by her in testimony today, also talked about January 6th on that day and said things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Um, so she was testifying to these conversations that she was a part of. She was sort of reporting on them. The, the other one that Jonah mentioned that I think was was notable was this conversation that she overheard with President Trump um, talking about President Trump being sympathetic to the people who wanted to hang Mike Pence uh, and the other conversation with President Trump acknowledging that there were people in the crowd who the Secret Service wanted to send through mags. Those are those magnetometers that can check for weapons. The Secret Service had seen reporting that there were people with weapons on the premises before. They didn't want to let people through unless they'd been through the magnetometers. Donald Trump, by, by her testimony, said, sort of to hell with the, the magnetometers. We don't need to take that step. Get them out there whether for the purposes of making the crowd look bigger or because he knew that they were armed. Um, that was something that she testified to today. David, there were, uh, in, including among those, bombshell after bombshell after bombshell as a part of her testimony. In your, in your uh, newsletter that we sent out less than an hour ago, you said you'd never heard anything like this. Not I, like that. I also no. <laughs> had never heard anything like this no. uh, before. Uh, what were your thoughts of the day? Big moments, things that you paid particular attention to? So uh, I put things into two categories. Here's category one, stuff that she directly heard people say, and she directly witnessed. And category two is things that people told her that they had witnessed. You know, so the lunging incident, the alleged lunging incident is not something that she witnessed. It's something where she testified that people told her about that. The stuff I'm so much more interested in is the stuff that she says, I heard this with my own ears or I saw this with my own eyes. That's what I'm much more interested in. And so I was really drilling down on that because when I heard the things that were somebody else, things that somebody else told her, my immediate thought was, well, let's hear from those guys, right? Let's hear from the people who, who talked to her. Um, so of the stuff that she said that she that she saw, the most compelling thing to me was something that Jonah already mentioned, where she said that she heard Trump talk specifically about his knowledge 
that the crowd was armed. And I don't think it was necessarily armed with guns. You know, they're armed with a lot of things, you know, a lot of, you know, baseball bats, you know, some people had modified their flagpoles to be weapons. They had, they were armed with a lot of stuff. And, and so that was very interesting to me because when you take it in context of everything else, what that does is it tells me there's a state of mind here. There's some evidence of a state of mind here for Trump. And I, I went back and I thought, okay, I've been skeptical, although less skeptical than some First Amendment folks, that there was some incitement on what we already knew about January 6th. But I went back and started furiously DMing with some of my First Amendment friends um, who were very skeptical of the incitement argument. Uh, against Donald Trump on January 6th. And I said, does this change anything with you, for you? And without exception, the people that I reached out to said, yes, this kind of closes a loop. Now, to be clear, Trump has denied it all. He has said it did not happen. He has truthed out on Truth Social that none of this has happened. So all of this is contested. But for me, when you're talking about a, a legal test that is this, that... Um, you can threaten violence. You can threaten disorder. You can say, I'm going to march, like in this case called Brandenburg v. v Ohio. They, they threatened to send 400,000 people to Washington and then 200,000 to Florida and 200,000 to Mississippi. And this was the Klan. Okay, this was the Klan. And the Supreme Court threw it out um, because they said it was the First Amendment is going to protect even threatened violence or disorder unless such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such lawless action. And what the thing that was interesting to me is this claim that Trump knew the crowd was armed um, really casts into different light, I think, the overall context. It, it I, you know, I think his intention was to incite, but did we have the evidence sufficient to overcome this legal hurdle? And that's where I think that this is, is really important. The other stuff. It's just sort of like additional color. A lot of it's just additional color that sort of fleshes out a bigger picture of a president out of control, um, a president who didn't care about his own vice president, but none of that's new. But I do think that when she came forward, she was very compelling. I mean, she was very compelling. And that is, so when you have a compelling person adding additional color, it often makes more difference. But I will say this, if the lunging choking allegation in the um, in the SUV is refuted by people who are there. That is going to have a real, a very real political effect on the whole day. Not necessarily legal effect on what kind of evidence she can offer legally about the president's statements about the armed crowd. It's a different deal. But politically, that's a big deal if it is decisively that lunging story is decisively refuted. Well, Sarah, let's go. I want to get your big picture impressions and takeaways, but let's, we've made a couple of allusions to this lunging episode. It was basically a description that she had recounting a meeting that she says she participated in um, between a top secret service agent who later became deputy chief of staff at the White House and uh, a Secret Service agent, last name Engel, who was in the car with President Trump when he was being taken away from the Capitol. And in her telling, my paraphrase would be, 
the president wanted to go to the Capitol. He had just told people that he was going to go to the Capitol. He wanted to go to the Capitol. The Secret Service told him forcefully, you can't go to the Capitol. She claims that they told her. The president then first lunged for the steering wheel. Uh, I don't know what he was trying to do if he lunged for the steering wheel, but lunged for the steering wheel and later lunged for one of the agents. Since that testimony has happened, um, Peter Alexander, very good reporter uh, with NBC News, um, tweeted, a source close to the Secret Service tells me both Bobby Engel, the lead agent, and the presidential limousine SUV driver are prepared to testify under oath that neither man was assaulted and that Mr. Trump never lunged for the steering wheel. So, Sarah, first, your overall impressions watching what we saw today at the hearings, and second, specifically about that and just the fact that this is now up for debate. We don't know what they'll testify to. We don't know where this is going. But the fact that it appears that these Secret Service agents are test are, are willing to testify that what she said happened never happened. Okay. Big picture, you know, we've heard, for instance, from Attorney General Bill Barr. We've heard from senior Department of Justice officials, the Deputy Attorney General, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, um, the, well, he's actually the Deputy Deputy Attorney General. We call him the, the PADAG um, in DOJ terminology. These are all Trump appointed senior staff members and uh, lawyers who sort of understand um, both testimony, sort of the, the situation. And so when it comes to all of their testimony, I think there's a very good reason that it both was less late in some ways, um, but also we haven't had this immediate rebuttal um, and calling into question some of the testimony. She is 25 years old. She was an assistant. She had uh, previously been a Capitol Hill intern um, who then comes to the White House. She came off to me as very credible, very um, poised, but she is still a 25-year-old assistant who is um, being told things. She's sort of in a situation that is entirely new for her in a lot of ways. A lot of, I, you couldn't help it that history was going on, run up to this. She knew that that wasn't lost on her. Um, so with all of that said, uh, you know, it struck me that when she says she's overhearing things, people are telling her things. She could hear one side of a conversation on the phone. That's the difference between getting testimony from an assistant and testimony from the paydag. Um, I, uh, okay, <laughs> we have, as David said, I think two buckets of her testimony. And I want to be very clear. I'm actually not questioning her credibility or that she lied under oath or anything like that. What I'm saying is that 18 months have gone by and that would have been an incredibly stressful time in her life, something she had never experienced before. She messed up the car that he was in that day. She kept saying he was in the beast. The beast refers specifically to the armored limousine. Everyone knows that. Um, and she kept saying he was in the beast. He lunged in the beast, all of this stuff. Well, he wasn't in that car that day. Um, when then she was talking about how the lunging and all of that, 
So now we have people who are actually there who she says told her this story, clearly saying that they did not, clearly saying it didn't happen. Um, notably, we know yet, we haven't been able to ask yet whether they told her that happened, which is different. Um, I absolutely could believe that members of the detail would exaggerate a story of how crazy things were getting to an assistant because, you know, you're like, oh my God, you won't believe this. And then you like lunge at the thing. Cause like, you're not thinking that you're doing this for posterity. You're talking to an assistant outside someone's office. Um, here's my bottom line. By making this a surprise hearing, by saying that this was going to be a huge deal that couldn't wait for the regular order. The committee staked their credibility on her testimony. And I think getting the detail about the car wrong was not huge. It didn't help, it wasn't good, but fine. I think having two secret service agents come out and say that that thing didn't happen that she said happened, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, because again, I don't think she was lying at any point in her testimony. I mean, I don't, I can't look into her heart, but she did not seem like someone with an agenda. Um, she seemed to have genuinely loved her job. Uh, but I think that it calls into question her entire testimony today. And this is going to sound like I'm going overboard a little, but frankly, it gives people a foothold into saying that all of the committee's work has this problem because they should someone out there hadn't checked and tried to corroborate her stories. There were other people in every single time that she's talking about overhearing something, someone telling her something, all of those things they could have checked with other people. And if these secret service agents are willing to tell Peter Alec going to testify under oath to this, the committee could have checked that ahead of time before putting a 25 year old in this position. So I'll say at this moment, at least, um, I feel a lot of antagonism toward the committee for sort of leaving her hanging like this. Can I, can I do one quasi-factual correction on this? Yes, please. We, okay, um, which is not a rebuttal to your point, I don't think. Peter Alexander's report is that he has a, it's a source close to those people. So, and the secret <laughs> <Okay>. service, <laughs> no, no, look, I'm just saying like, and the secret service, which says has been cooperating all along with the committee, did not put out a rebuttal on this. They put out a statement saying we've been cooperating all along and we're not going to respond to the daily allegations. Because I agree with you in principle, maybe not at the scale, like where, where you're placing things at a 10 in terms of the credibility of the committee, I might put it more like a six or a seven, but. I don't think it's a 10. I don't think, I, what I'm saying is that someone can use this to say that all of the the committees were. Right, right. No, the I, I'm just. They didn't want Republicans on the committee. I mean, you can, I can build up a whole narrative. Sure about that they committee. will be saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they I, would be saying my, it regardless, my, but they will be saying that. My point wasn't that you're saying it's a 10. My point was if your position is like a 10, mine's a little oh, oh. less than all yours, right? right? So, yeah, yeah. But all that being said, it does raise like, you know, questions of, is there some, weird, either brilliant or too brilliant by a half strategery going on behind the scenes, because I agree with you. She didn't need that story. And she had testified to the committee four times in depositions. So right. like, why was this a surprise testimony? Why was this sprung on everyone at the last minute? And so unless it's to build it up. Right. No, well, isn't there isn't can I answer that yeah. question? Isn't there a, a real answer there? And it's that she switched her lawyers, right? She was represented by somebody 
for a long time going back, and this is her first participation in the committee's proceedings under this new lawyer. And I think that that's, it, it feels relevant to me. I suspect that we'll learn it's more relevant going on, but, but does oh, that I think matter? that's very relevant for why she was willing to, but for the committee to build it up as we have new evidence, there's surprise testimony. We need to do this right now. If they just wanted to say a, a witness who was previously unavailable is now available, they should have said that, but that's not what they said. But she was available. She testified four times before. And I think this was their attempt to get her on the record saying this stuff in public. They've used her depositions in, in earlier proceedings. I do think, I'll, I'll go a little bit further than, than Jonah. I do think it matters um, that we just at this point have Peter Alexander reporting that these two people who were supposedly witnesses or participants in this incident and that they're the ones who told her. It's not just that they happen to also be there. Her testimony is that at least one of them is the source for her story. One of them was there, right. And um, I think it does matter that all we have at this point is Peter Alexander, Alexander saying they are willing to testify to this because just as it's fair for us to question her credibility on the story or, or wonder whether she's whether she can speak with the same authority to an incident that she didn't witness, their own credibility presumably will come into question. These are people who have already testified before the committee in deposition. If the committee is able to say they made these five claims before and they turned out not to be true, should we believe them when they deny something now, that would be relevant in our evaluation of the story as well, no? Except Steve, this is it mattered to have multiple perspectives on the committee, right? Cross-examining them under oath would be really helpful, but they haven't cross-examined any other witness. So yeah, I guess I am going to have like a little bit of my hackles up if they only cross-examine the people who don't like fit their narrative. You see the problem with that? Sure. But I guess it wouldn't be so much that they don't fit their narrative as it would be if their testimony, if they're testimony in the future directly contradicts testimony that they've provided in the past totally, on this or, on, or on anything else. I would think that would impeach their credibility in a pretty I agree, but way. we don't have anyone to go through Cassidy's four previous depositions to then say, well, you said this this time, which is different than you said at this time, because we don't have anyone on the committee to do that. It goes to the committee's credibility when they only bring up the credibility of witnesses who disagree with them. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think it would be helpful to see all the transcripts. Like, let's see it. If, yeah, absolutely. if her story absolutely. has more detail, we should understand. If her story has changed, we should understand. There's no way really to make a, a proper evaluation of the truth. Like, let um, me give one example. If, for instance, the lunging in any of her four prepositions, and this was the time that she talked about it, that was really relevant, and they did not mention it. Sure. I mean, and, and if that happened, we would want an explanation as to why her story changed. Maybe she was, you know, again, I, I mean, we don't know at the end of the at the end of the testimony, there was an interesting decision by the committee to play or to share two um, messages, I guess we would say. I don't know if they were texts or emails or what have you um, sent to witnesses that the committee alleged were efforts to get them to stay on the team, to be loyal to Trump. Um, 
you know, was it the case that in her previous depositions with her previous lawyer, which I think was a Trump friendly lawyer, she testified in a particular way and now freed of, of that or having made a decision that she wasn't going to be on the team um, as somebody. Yep. That's why you want someone to cross examine all of these witnesses, because otherwise, like, so I think if she had given the lunging story in any of those four depositions, we would have heard about it before this. It would have been in the press and they would have shown her tape deposition of that. That's why I think today's in-person testimony was different. So there's a couple of reasons. You're right. Maybe she felt threatened before in that story. Uh, maybe it's because she newly remembered the story. There's all sorts of reasons. That's why you need someone who's there who is a little more because I assure you they will do it with the secret service agents and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that the, the, if there's consensus um, among the four of us on anything, it's that it would have been much better to have a full real commission with people yeah. in the political parties. Nobody's disputing that. <laughs> under oath. Um, David, what about the credibility? If, if these two, let's say that Peter Alexander's tweet is exactly right, that they will step forward and they say, look, she may have misunderstood what we were saying. We, yes, we had this conversation, but that's not how we remember it. I certainly don't think that's how I described it. You know, the president wasn't happy with us. How much does that matter? So the fact that we have already spent more time talking about the legally less significant moment uh, and less time, we, we spent much more time speaking about what's legally less significant than or, I'm getting it backwards. We have spent less time on the more significant disclosure and more time on the less significant disclosure tells you a lot about, I think, what would be the political fallout of a debunking or a strong rebuttal of this story. I think that it would have a real ripple effect. It would be immediately picked up across the length and breadth of right-wing media. And look, it would be a legitimate critique it would be a legitimate critique if this is out there on, you know, this is out there and then the due diligence had not been done before. But the thing I want to circle back on is we've talked about this uh, January 6th commission in sort of three buckets, the political bucket, the legal bucket, and sort of the historical bucket. Like there's a historical value in getting in all of these depositions and all of this, and we're going to get a report that's going to tell us more than we've ever known before in totality about what happened. That is a value. There's going to be some leg legally significant revelations that may or may not contribute to um, a potential prosecution or provide prosecutors with enough additional evidence to determine that they want to prosecute. That's a value. And then there's the political. So I think this lunging thing is much more relevant on the political side of these three buckets than the legal or historical. And, and I've always seen the January 6th commission as being a much more of a legal and historical of legal and historical worth than of political. Like we've said it time and time again, probably not going to impact the 2022 election. Who knows if it will impact Trump's future, you know, prospects in 2024. But I do think that if this lunging thing is decisively rebutted, that political bucket, the January 6th commission takes a hit. The legal and the historical is a different matter. And, and that's, you know, that's sort of back to where I've always been thinking of the true value of this commission. But wouldn't David, to Sarah's point, wouldn't, if, if it's, if it's credibly rebutted, and I, I do think that the, the credibility, what we've heard from these 
two witnesses before will matter as we evaluate yeah. their credibility sure, sure. on how they they talk about this. If if for instance they have been overly protective of Donald Trump in previous right. depositions because they have some loyalty to Trump or whatever, it will matter how we evaluate what they do. But I mean to Sarah's point, the political the political part of this is going to really matter. I mean, if it is the case that people say, oh gosh, she didn't even know she wasn't there. We, we don't believe her fruit of the poison tree. Like we're not, we don't believe anything she said. Wouldn't that matter in a, in, in a legal and historical context as well? I mean, it all matters to some degree, <laughs> you know, it absolutely all matters to some degree. I just, what I'm, you know, if you're talking about by the by the time we have a final report, if there has been due diligence here, the final report is going to reflect the more the totality of the evidence. And that final report is going to be and if it's done well, if it's done well, is going to be cleansed of sort of the back and forth of the news cycle. Now, so four minutes ago, uh, I'm looking uh, a CNN reporter, Gabby Orr says Tony Ornato is denying that he told Cassidy Hutchinson Trump grabbed the steering wheel in a pres in presidential vehicle on one sex or lunged at fellow agents. So um, CNN has confirmed that Ornato and Engler are pre prepared to testify that neither incident occurred. So you're already it's emerging that there is a strong pushback here. Um, and I think that's going to matter a lot politically here. I think it's going to matter a lot. Yeah, it's not like I, I just my last point on this, and then I don't want to make a complete gear change point that I've been vexed by. Um, the other story that you can, it's always amusing that Trump has this lizard brain, lizard brain understanding that stories that are visual in nature that capture your imagination and don't require a lot of explanation bother him a lot. You know, the P tape thing, that image bothered him a lot, understandably. Um, the image of him lunging for the wheel, that is like a movie. He thinks of things of how they would look like in movies. He liked uh, cabinet secretaries who looked like they were out of central casting. The other thing that really upset him was the story about him throwing stuff against the wall. According to um, Hutchinson, the valet was there for that. At least that's my recollection of, of her testimony. January 6th committee, I hope, talked to the valet and said, hey, did this happen? You know, like just to button that stuff down because you know CNN's going to or Fox is going to or somebody's going to. And, you know, that kind of stuff just needs to be needs to be buttoned down if you're going to go out there with it, because that's the that's the catnip for the press. I will say, you know, Noah Rothman from commentary is the only person I know who's just harped on this relentlessly. I brought it up a couple of times in various places. But when we talk about how history is going to look, but look at January 6th, there was this other thing that is only sort of casually talked about in the committee hearings that was actually in many ways one of the gravest constitutional crises in American history, which is that the vice president of the United States, with no authorization and no authority, assumed the powers of the president and started issuing orders to the U.S. military because the president of the United States was AWOL and refused to do anything. And you and everyone is sort of OK with it because they know that Mike Pence was on the right side of that and he was telling the military to do the right things. But if you think about it just sort of as a abstract sort of, you know, you know, fact pattern kind of thing, or if you can imagine a scenario where let's say the president is like the responsible good guy 
and he's checked out for some legitimate reason, not because he's watching TV, hoping that the rioters actually get a hold of Nancy Pelosi or something. This is the and, Ashcroft hospital bed scene. Yeah. And the, the vice president of the United States starts telling the U.S. military, yeah, start deploying troops without the okay or the buy-in from the president of the United States. That's a huge deal. And everyone just sort of like, eh, it was okay because Mark Milley, you know, dismissed the president's stuff as politics, 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 in his words, and completely followed Mike Pence's orders. Um, and we don't talk about that. That alone is like a really big deal constitutionally and historically. And but because it, it fits a more pleasing narrative, we just don't talk about it very much. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you set aside, let's let's set aside the the, the lunging question, the controversy over that for the time being, one of the things that emerged from the testimony that I think is largely corroborated by what we had heard in previous hearings and what we had seen in public reporting is the extent to which other you know parts of the federal security infrastructure tried to thwart what the president was doing, both on January 6th and in the days leading up to January 6th, which is, again, if we're talking about impeachment or we're talking about sort of big picture 25th Amendment issues, the fact that all of these people, whether you're talking about Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, whether you're talking about the senior Department of Justice people, whether you're talking about um, you know, folks at the White House who are begging the president to speak up and stop this, um, I think gives a pretty indication of where the president's mind was, whether or not he lunged in, in a, um, at, at the limo driver. Closing thoughts on this, I want to move to um, discussion of Roe v. Wade, and uh, we're happy to take questions on this. We'll take questions on Roe v. Wade. We've got about 25 minutes left. Any closing did, thoughts on this before we move on? Did something happen with Roe v. Wade? <laughs> Sorry. We're going to break thought. the news. Don't get ahead of us. Don't closing get ahead of us. is super simple. The legally significant revelation is the revelation, is the testimony. This is, again, directly. She says, I heard him say it that he knew that the mob was armed, that they weren't coming after him and to remove the mags. Now, the motivation, whether it was because he wanted people close to him or they're not coming to after me or whatever, that was not me, was not a word that she emphasized in her testimony, but it's been the word that's been emphasized all over online. That is the significant legal revelation right there. Anything else? Well, Jonas, since you broke the news and got ahead of us, <laughs> that there has been a development in Roe v. Wade. I was just asking questions. Okay, good. Then I'm going to ditch you, Sarah. <laughs> um, since you know more about this than Jonah, anyway, um, there were there was some news about Roe v. Wade late last week. Maybe, and I'm I'm told that uh, the advisory opinions podcast. Pretty flagship. good, pretty good, scrappy little podcast, even if it's not <laughs> flagship podcast. Pretty good, scrappy little podcast that we're darn proud of. Um, may have discussed these developments, but maybe you could sort of bring us up to date what happened, what's happened since, and where do things stand right now? Okay, so on Friday morning at 10, 11 Eastern, the Supreme Court released its opinion in Dobbs. They upheld Mississippi's 15-week ban. Five justices said they would overturn Roe in its entirety. Chief Justice Roberts um, said that he would overturn Roe partially. You had the three dissenters, not surprising. But you had Justice Thomas say that also, just 
side note, we should revisit all these other cases like Griswold, the right to access birth control, um, Obergefell, the right to gay marriage, Lawrence, which struck down as law had criminalized uh, sodomy uh, between same-sex partners. Have Justice Kavanaugh, and to some extent, Alito, but I mean, Justice Kavanaugh basically writes separately to say, those precedents are not in doubt, despite what my colleague just said. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh also noting that there are other constitutional protections that may come into play. Cough, cough, red states don't pass crazy laws. He notes, for instance, that a state which and a woman from traveling to another state to seek an abortion could violate the unenumerated constitutional right to travel. Um, I, David and I talked about the possibility that a state that did not have an exception for the life um, or serious potential injury to the mother might not pass other constitutional muster. Since then, since Friday, at least in two states, actually enjoined the trigger laws of those states. Louisiana is the one um, that I'm most up to date with. Texas, uh, the Center for Reproductive Rights, said they had a judge enjoining it just a couple hours ago, but I haven't been able to confirm that myself. In Louisiana, uh, their trigger law was enjoined for very good reason, which is that they had multiple trigger laws. The attorney general <laughs> didn't say which trigger law was triggered. Multiple state officials said they weren't sure. The one of the trigger laws itself um, doesn't specify what the exceptions are. It's very vague. And so they just said, like, you, we can't be held to criminal liability under a law that we don't know is in effect and that we don't even know what the law allows. And the judge said, you're right. They're going to have to clarify some of this before it goes into effect. So a little bit of a preview of um, if the Supreme Court thought they were out of the business of abortion, we've got some bad news for them. Yeah, David, hmm. this this sounds like jurisprudential chaos. And for those of us who don't follow the courts, that doesn't make it different than any other day. I mean, I hear I hear Fifth Circuit, Third Circuit. This most of us don't know what that means. Yeah. What what should we think about the state of play right now with respect to Roe v. Wade? And what are we likely to see here in the coming days and weeks? So short term, lots of confusion. Okay, so one of the things you you need to know about any given state is that there has been a lot of performative legislation in red states over the last 10 or so years on abortion and not all of it harmonizes. So you would you would say because it was all going to get enjoined, right? It was never going to go into effect. You could pass a heartbeat bill. You could pass a trigger bill. You could pass a 14-week ban. You could, I mean, you could just have it all over the place. And then it's like, well, which law is the law, <laughs> right? And so there's going to be some confusion there on that point, and you're, and that's going to have to get sorted out. You're going to see a lot of state legislatures sort of rushing to legislate right now, and rushed legislation, um, you know, as extraordinarily expert and competent as the median state legislature is, they're just not at their best and rushed to legislation. So we're going to see a lot of confusion over the short term. And so you're also going to see some tension in the pro-life community. And here, here's the tension you're going to see. You're going to see tension between those people who are going to say, our absolute priority right now is to nail down as broad of a ban as we possibly can nail down. So how can we 
prohibit the importation of abortion drugs? How can we do something to prevent people from going out of state? Uh, you know, you're going to see one one segment of people going really hard on that. Then you're going to be another set of people are saying, no, no, no. This is exactly when we push forward with a legislative package to support mothers and babies. So if we already have a trigger bill, if we already have a heartbeat bill or whatever, now is the time to push forward the package for supporting mothers and babies. And so you're going to see a push and pull on that, and you're going to see some tension there. Uh, and then the last thing you're going to have is you're actually going to start to, and, and I've had a really instructive last several days. I think I've had, Sarah, I don't know if it's the same with you, over and under of 15,000 row conversations in the last <laughs> few days. And here is what has absolutely come up where people just are mystified. Okay, here's what mystifies people. So there's enumerated rights, which we all agree are there in the Constitution. And then we all agree there's unenumerated rights. But how do we tell what's unenumerated and what's not? Like, how does that yes. work? D indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we know? And, and then you're kind of like, well, um, um, <laughs> well, there's, and furthermore, and you just sort of, and, and there is a long answer to that question, but it's a very unsatisfactory answer because the unenumerated, unenumerated rights were never defined. I mean, that's the whole point of having, by definition, right. by definition, unenumerated rights. It was supposed to be left vague so that the, the state did not, or the government did not think it could do everything that the Bill of Rights prohibited it. And so we've kind of got this pop sort of public mess where, you know, I, I had this conversation where somebody said, um, I said, you know, look, as Kavanaugh said, someone banning someone from going out of state is going to violate the right to travel. The first question was, I don't recall seeing that in the Constitution. Well, it's not. Oh, help me. Is <laughs> there then the response? Help me here. Right to travel is there, you know. And so I think there's a big sort of public education challenge here about this as well. There's just going, there's going to be a lot of confusion in the short term. So Jonah, I want to I don't, wait, let me before before you jump in, let me ask you a question specifically about something that David said, because I don't know if you picked up on it, but I caught a little bit of sarcasm from David when he was talking about state legislatures mm -hmm. and their ability to what? handle things that like is, that's libel slander. And I'll give you a chance to come back at me on this, David. But, Jonah, to you first, wasn't the conservative argument all along, hey, we should leave this to state legislatures. They're much better equipped to make these decisions. If, if they're as incompetent or incapable of doing this as I'm now broadly ascribing to David totally unfairly, isn't that a contradiction in the conservative <laughs> argument? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the problem you're not is, supposed to defend David on this. That the was problem, how I imagine the problem is, as as David suggested, and as Sarah and I have talked about a few times, part of the problem is that Roe v. Wade allowed everybody to take whatever positions they wanted without any accountability by taking it out of the power of legislatures. And so you have an, a whole two generations effectively, two political generations of politicians who have never had to actually 
put their money where their mouth is legislatively on the question of abortion. It's all free votes because the Supreme Court is the was the entity that set abortion policy. And so, of course, they're sort of out of practice at this. State legislators are really good at figuring out like zoning stuff because they've had to do that every day. That's their job, right, is like to do the stuff that they're actually in charge of. They'll get better at this. A lot of them will lose their jobs, as they should, because they're going to be pandering to their bases and realize, holy crap, I got voters who disagree with me on this stuff, both on the pro-choice and pro-life side. And um, and so I think, you know, we're going to have a couple of years of true chaos, political chaos. I don't, you know, I, in, in the sense of all of a sudden, these people who just don't have any muscle memory about how to deal with these issues are going to have to deal with these issues. But I think they'll get up to speed on it relatively quickly because they're still better qualified to get up to speed on this stuff than Congress is um, or than the or the executive branches. And so but I want to so I have a column that will be up on the dispatch tomorrow. Um, I wrote about how I think that, look, I agree with the with with the majority. I have some sympathy for the, as, as Sarah would describe it, the Burkean institutionalist reservations of Justice Roberts. Um, but I agree with the four corner within the four corners of the decision. I think Alito has it right. And I think that Roe is just bad law and should go. Would this be my preferred way to do it? I, I don't know, but that's not a choice I have. I do think that this is an, uh, this is arguably, I think almost irrefutably the biggest victory of, for the American right in the last half century, maybe ever. Um, the only competing one would be the Cold War. And the Cold War just has too many other variables in it having to do with geopolitics and whatnot to give it fully just to the American right. Um, this is a huge, huge deal. It, it, it will, it, it, if, it, if it had gone the other way, you could see the Federal Society imploding. You can see all sorts of things happening on the right, you know, cats sleeping with dogs, everything. But in politics, victory is often really bad news for the victors. <laughs> and I, th I think I, I make this case. I talked to Jay Nordlinger about it today on my podcast, the flagship podcast. Um, this is the last stool of the three-legged stool of Reaganism. And it's gone now. It's just flatly gone, right? Uh, the Cold War ended the defense stool in any coherent way. We tried to rebuild it around the war on terror. That really wasn't sustainable. Um, the free market stool is just a hot mess right now. Um, but opposition to the pro-life cause was the third stool, effectively. And with it gone, you're already seeing two different factions emerge. I think more than two. But you have the, the people who spent the last 50 years as a category saying we got to get rid of Roe because it's bad constitutional law and who paid lip service to the pro-life stuff. And then you have the, the committed pro-lifers who, yeah, paid lip service to getting rid of Roe, but they saw it as an instrumental necessity towards their real goal, which is getting rid of abortion in toto. And so you can imagine a scenario where if, if say, Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority and he can get five, get, get four, five justices to vote with him, where he says, the 14th Amendment guarantees a right to life. Abortion is hereby banned in all 50 states. Some pro-lifers would cheer wildly. Other ostensible pro-lifers who were part of the same movement for 50 years would say, 
whoa, 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 we're against judicial activism. I thought the whole point was sending this back to the states. You now have a situation where these two tribes were once sort of joined at the hip are starting to separate. It's very telling. Ron DeSantis is not getting rid of the 15-week cutoff in, in Florida. Chris Sununu says abortion is going to stay legal in New Hampshire. Um, uh, Glenn Youngkin is going for a 15-week um, uh, you know, limit as well. And so what you're seeing is the politicians and the activists who said, no, the real issue was getting rid of Roe because it was bad constitutional law. And the pro-lifers who are saying, wait a second, no, 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 what we really want is a federal abortion ban. And you're going to have those guys fighting it out in all sorts of subtle ways and explicit ways. And it, to me, it means that the conservative movement is going to lose even more of the coherence that it had al- than it had already lost. So stipulated, let's say we all agree with you on the last statement you made, that this conservative movement will seem more incoherent. Again, and I'll, I'll go back to, to David quickly, and then Sarah, I want to ask you the same question. Isn't this what conservatives said? should happen yes yeah right? i mean this I is mean, like a, this should be a good thing is the chaos that we're seeing right now if you're a conservative and you believe in limited government and you're pro-life shouldn't we be seeing this well okay not the chaos all right <laughs> not <laughs> but the it chaos. Had, that had to happen, right <laughs> well I, not necessarily i mean i i'm not going to say right now that the right is in the healthiest place it's ever been i mean you know we're, we're talking a movement that has really moved towards performative, punitive forms of legislation. It's really a, a, in many ways, disproportionately Im- impacted by right-wing infotainment media. This is not landing in the same Republican Party that even existed a few years ago. And so I think that is enhancing the confusion, quite frankly. And and so, for example, there's always been a very small part of the pro-life movement that's called calls itself or refers to itself as abolitionist. Okay. I hate that they've appropriated that wonderful term, but they call themselves abolitionist. And and what does it mean to be abolitionist? It means to prosecute women. It means to women who obtain abortions. It means to eliminate all exceptions for obtaining an abortion, including life of the mother. And and so that's a much more prominent part of the pro-life community than it was even a few years ago. And then you've got the bounty hunting legislation that's in Idaho and Oklahoma and Texas. And so you have a lot of things that you haven't seen over the recent, over, you know, in, in many years on the Republican side. So yes, absolutely 100% wrote this, this decision is correct in my view. What is unfortunate is the right is the condition of the right upon which this decision is landing? That's where I am on it. Sarah, um, I think there's a, a. I think the problem is so much bigger than I even know how to say succinctly on this podcast. Um, the number of people I've heard uh, saying how banning IVF actually will be part of the agenda, uh, by which I mean in vitro fertilization, which will cover a lot of other fertility treatments as well, um, that that actually now should be part of the goal. Um, or that, I mean, as David said, like the life exceptions for the mother, which I actually think would not pass, um, legal scrutiny and just a, a lack. It's what the chief justice called the relentless freedom from doubt. 
if you don't think this is a hard issue, you haven't spent much time with it. And there's a lot of relentless freedom from doubt going on on the right of everyone trying to race to get to the more extreme side. Ken Paxton, the Texas attorney general, uh, said in an interview that he would absolutely defend laws on the books that challenged Lawrence. And again, that's the criminalization of sodomy in the state of Texas. Um, the right wants to go all out on this stuff. Good luck. But like Jonah said, I mean, this is the biggest victory the right's had. It took 40 years, I would argue, not the full 50 um, since Roe was on the books. Um, if you fail to recognize why this is a difficult issue, you will fail to recognize the politics of the issue. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Sarah, right back to you. A question from Virginia. Why is the Supreme Court okay with sending abortion back to the states, but not okay with state restrictions, such as the one they struck down in New York, on guns? Yes, Sarah. Yeah. 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 Come on, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is a really good question. You are not the only person who has this question. Here's the problem. The second amendment is an enumerated constitutional right. It says the mm -hmm. right to keep and bear arms. And so what the Supreme court is for enumerated constitutional right majoritarian. It doesn't matter how people vote in their States. Same with speech. Um, we protect unpopular speech we don't leave it to a vote. That's a counter-majoritarian protection. That's what the Bill of Rights is for. That's that's what the Fourth Amendment, which protects you from uh, search and seizure, the Fifth Amendment and your trial rights, um, all of that is counter-majoritarian. With abortion, what they're saying is that is not an enumerated or unenumerated constitutional right, meaning it's with the vast majority of other things that are majoritarian. Uh, by the way, and I'm curious what David thinks about this, we may talk about it on advisory opinions, but I actually think, for instance, that in vitro fertilization is not a constitutional right. I don't think there's any challenge. If a state wants to ban that, I think they're going to be just on uh, at least constitutionally solid legal ground doing it. And so when you're talking about the vast, vast majority of personal rights that you have to wear blue jeans or to own AirPods, those are not constitutional rights. We leave it up to the if the majority says that we allow blue jeans in Texas, then by God, all those cowboys are going to be in a lot of trouble. But First Amendment, religion, assembly, press, petition, speech, Second Amendment, guns, we're not leaving those up to a vote is what our contract, that's what the Constitution is, a contract that the ratifiers signed when they um, voted in their states to ratify it. David, what one? I agree with you, Sarah, on IVF. I agree with you, especially after Dobbs. Yeah. I, I, it's hard for me to see the the counter argument with this court um, after Dobbs. Full disclosure, by the way, Nate is an IVF baby. That's why, like, I think people have come to me asking this question. Right, right. So, I agree with your analysis. Um, number two, one of the things that's interesting when you're talking about unenumerated rights, one of the most central rights that we essentially take for granted in this country that a million, hundreds of millions of Americans take for granted is unenumerated. And that is the right to direct the upbringing of your child. Mm. That is an unenumerated right. There's a number, you know, right to travel, there's a number of them. So there's the enumerated, but then when you have unenumerated, you can't just sort of say, you can't denigrate those. You can't just say, well, we, we can't have those. 
because the constitution, number one, explicitly provides for them. And number two, if you just can't have them, they're going to be some of the most important things that you care about in life are going to be encompassed there. So that's why this gets really intense and, and really tough. And number three, Sarah, did you see court opinions tomorrow? I know. I'm exhausted. <laughs> more, more, more advisory out. opinions. We have climate change. We have migrant okay, protection protocols. <laughs> quickly, quickly. Uh, we have three minutes left. Um, a question from Matthew. Can we hear a sound legal defense of substantive due process? Um, David, actually, before we get to a legal defense of it, uh, if you care to offer one, uh, can you describe it, define it? What is it? Why do we care about it? And why? how did Justice Thomas make this part of the discussion that we're having now? So substantive due process, to like be super oversimplified, is essentially the term that describes the use of the 14th Amendment to codify specific unenumerated rights. Okay, so substantive due process is the way, that's the phrase that's used. In some ways, it's kind of nonsensical, as Justice Thomas outlined, because due process normally refers to a process, like cross-examination or, you know, the right to counsel or the right to see the evidence against you. Those are all parts of due process. But the word substantive implies that there's something not procedural about due process. Now, a lot of people have long had uh, the, the amount of ink spilled on law reviews over why do we talk about enumerated rights guaranteed through the 14th Amendment through substantive due process versus privileges or immunities clause is a really interesting question. Um, and so that's what, you know, that substantive due pro that's what substantive due process is basically. And the critique of it essentially is that it is just not textual. It is just, that's not what due process means. And add, adding the word substantive on in the front of it is atextual, whereas you have a privileges or immunities clause that where you have some room to run. But let me give the quick defense of it, which is, Brett Rowe, did we just lose Steve? Yes. He's out. He's done. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Overtime. Um, here's the quick defense of substantive which is the living constitution side that uh, we're not amending the constitution. That's not even really what is expected at this point. The court is um, has to evolve the constitution to modern society. And so a right to privacy is something very important now on top of each other in a way that it then because no one would have been up in your business back then kind of although really they definitely would have been back up in your business um, but as living constitutionalism has fallen by the wayside of liberal legal jurisprudence so too has substantive due process and that's where we end up today okay i will take over briefly okay um, I, just just so you know a very good friend of mine who yes. this is the first ao he's watched i mean the first dispatch live he's watching and he's a recovering lawyer he says that uh, you guys should do an AO dedicated entirely to substantive due process, and you should have you know a pro con debate about it. I'm just yeah, so it's actually relatively. So we had Steve Vladek on um, the podcast last uh, late April, um, just over a month ago, who is sort of a very left wing law professor. And like, there's like, even he won't defend living constitutionalism. It's very yeah. hard to find those people now. Um, there, there's like a. I mean, we don't need to get into the weeds of it, but it is a dying breed. That's um, good. They've gone pretty extinct. <laughs> Nature okay. is healing. That's good. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, uh, Jonah, if Casey had overturned Roe, would abortion still be a political issue? 
today? Um, much less. I mean, I, I, it's a, it's a difficult contrafactual. I think much less of one. I mean, this is a point. I think Ross Daffin made a good point about this in his column. Is that the conservative movement basically had to get conservative justices on the court twice to do this because the first time, you know, if it hadn't been for Souter and you know all that, you wouldn't have had Casey. And um, and I think it it would have been become a, a less defining issue for the GOP for the simple reason that the bitterness that Casey caused um, was was galvanizing and polarizing. And look, let, let's just, you know, I mean, you guys know this stuff as well or better than I do, but, you know, it, it's really important to remind people that America was an outlier and that, like, you know, you had this this jackwad from Green Day saying he's moving to the UK and renouncing his US citizenship over Dobbs. And as I pointed out on Twitter, okay, so he's leaving California where there are effectively no limits on abortion to go to the UK where the cutoff <laughs> is at 24 weeks. Right. And, you know, and most of Europe, the cutoff is somewhere between 14 and, you know, 20 weeks. And that's actually where, you know, a plurality or a majority of Americans are. The idea, like the, the life, you know, banning all abortion from conception forward is very unpopular in the United States and is I don't think is going to happen. But like a 15 to 20, you know, a first trimester, some, you know, you can get away with it. And then after that, there are increasing restrictions. That's the norm in the industrialized West. And even Ruth Bader Ginsburg had argued that like Roe messed that up because they were coming to a societal compromise on all of this. But anyway, that's just a side note. Okay, two more notes. Uh, one, we got a lot of questions on the ability. No, Steve's back. No, no. he's back. No. Okay, with Steve gone, can we all now agree <laughs> that Spanish wines are overrated? Yes, no. yes, yes, yes. No, we already yeah. decided that's done. We've had oh, that conversation. Sorry, is that from loyal watcher, loyal viewer, Jonah? <laughs> yeah, you're the Sonia Sotomayor of this court. You're just like lonely descent. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so one, uh, we got some questions on the federal legislation on either side of the abortion debate. You know, could Democrats codify Roe? Could Republicans ban abortion entirely? I actually think that's a really good one to save for advisory opinions because it's actually a very um, in the weeds question in a lot of ways. It goes to Congress's power, not even the political question, although the political question seems like that's not going to happen. Well, Though there let were- me ask you this. Like, could you pass, what, forget how tendentious it is for some people. Uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, abortion is murder, right? The federal government doesn't pass anti-murder statutes. I mean, it passes like you cannot it kill does, a postal though. worker. No, you can't kill a postal worker on a federal pier kind of statutes. It does not say there are no blanket anti-homicide laws on the federal level, are there? Um, it's denying someone their civil rights. It's impeding right. the function of a federal worker. I remember this because I worked. To be I, clear, denying someone their civil rights is denying them life. Like that actually is one of the ways in which they prosecute murder. So, like, it is fair. fair. Okay. Um, but, but it's, but crime is a state issue for the most part, right? So, like, what would be the argument for passing a, a ban on abortion on those grounds? Because, for instance, the partial birth abortion ban was passed. So we know they have passed abortion bills in the past. Um, Fair, okay. We have we have federalized a lot of criminal law, um, and that's why 
you know, when a South Carolina police officer shoots a guy in the park in South Carolina, he is charged at the state level and he's charged federally. And we're seeing more and more of those of dual sovereign charges. So it's an interesting question. And one we'll talk about more on AO. I vote Um, against that on whenever it comes up for a floor vote that I'm voting on. But anyway, go on. Second, Virginia had a follow-up on her Second Amendment versus abortion question, and she said, what about the well-regulated militia? So why can't New York regulate it? Really good, and we need to talk about that one on AO, too, because weirdly, they didn't really talk about that in this Second Amendment case in Bruin, Mm -hmm. but they talked about it a lot in Heller, the 2008 Second Amendment case. So we're going to go back to the 2008 case and revisit the historical context around why everyone thinks they can ignore that clause of the second amendment. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter with like, magenta is the best color. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Like surely the clause means something. So Uh, you should definitely call that podcast, oh, hell or no. (laughs) Um, Next, please tell Steve Hayes, we mutinied and Sarah is now captain. I am the captain now. Uh, Okay, but since Steve is back, Steve, we are done. Plug Naples. I mean, Jonah, is it any surprise that I get zeroed out here? My internet drops and the last 10 minutes become basically a long promo for advisory opinions. Yes. I mean, I guess I'm not, <laughs> I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah. Well, the thing um, is I have such confidence in my podcast that I don't need to worry about like oh, these guys. Except you yeah. slipped in the fake flagship podcast claim uh, moments ago. Um. Yes. So I think we can all plug Naples uh, at the same time. You all uh, watching tonight should have received a heads up about the first real post-election or first real in-person event that the dispatch is doing. It will be in Naples from November 10th through the 13th. Um, It will feature the four people you see here for better or for worse. Um, and a number of uh, very distinguished guests uh, from a wide variety of the discussion in the country about politics, policy and culture, elected officials, think tank types, journalists, and others. We're going to spend three days talking about what has just happened, the 2022 midterm elections. Of course, those midterm elections are effectively the starting gun for the 2024 presidential race. Um, we will undoubtedly be talking about things like what's what we talked about for the last 20 minutes, Roe v. Wade, the implications of the January 6th committee and committee and President Trump's, um, I would call it an attempted coup. There will be much to discuss and to discuss, and we will have uh, some terrific guests to join us. So we hope that you will join us. You should have gotten an email about it today. If you have any questions, send an email to members at the dispatch.com. You can be sure that you will be hearing from us about it a lot if you happen not to get the email today. So there will be plenty of time to um, to join us, to sign up. To, to goose registration, should I just go ahead and announce now my exclusive three-hour seminar on the movies Top Gun, Dune, and Aquaman? And this could get bad. I have threatened, I think, actually in the the email that we sent out to do a Spanish wine tasting Um <laughs> Without checking with anyone, I just decided to to announce that that could happen. Maybe not. Obviously, William, you're not invited. Um, so <laughs> I will be just so people know, I will be drinking alone in my room. But occasionally, I'll come out on my balcony and yell at all of you to disperse. 
I mean, it's basically like <laughs> basically like how you run the dispatch, right? Pretty much, yeah. Every day, every day. No, this will be fun. We're excited for the for the event. Um, we we have had some concerns. We'll talk openly about it. This is a pretty pricey first event. We were a little bit worried about that. Uh, it's fifteen hundred dollars a ticket. You have to pay for your hotel room. On top of that, um, not cheap. We want to make sure that you understand that we're going to be doing a series of regional events. Details will be announced in the coming weeks about those that will be not as pricey. Um, probably not a three-day event, but we'll be doing evening events, maybe glorified meetups and happy hours, dispatch podcast tapings, things like that around the country in the weeks leading up to the election and leading up to the Naples event. So we hope that you can join us at some of those. We're going to try to be sort of um, diverse in the places that we choose. We obviously can't get to everywhere, but we're excited to get this uh, to get this going. And this is a big part of what we want to do. When we started, we wanted to make the dispatch a community. We have, um, I think, succeeded in spite of ourselves and because of because of you. Um, and we only aim to really build that out in the coming weeks and months. We've talked about our new website. That too is coming. We will have more updates on that. It will have enhanced community features that I think you all will like. So if you'd like to spend time with us, uh, there will be more opportunities to do that. We're excited to have you. Thanks for tuning in. We went 10 minutes late today. I mean, we have had, just to be clear, we have had uh, lots of suggestions on Twitter in our comments about doing this for an hour and a half. We're going to try to keep it to an hour, but I think it's fair to say that on a news day like today, we're not going to apologize too much for going 10 minutes over. So we're glad those of you who are still with us, stuck with us. Thank you very much. And we will see you next Tuesday. Good night. Mr. Pater.